Welcome to today's episode. I'm Lily. Let's get into it. Let's be real. Enduring a week of Davos panel discussions is a task nobody envies. We'd much rather enjoy watching the rebel news guys ruffle the feathers of globalists, an act that, while entertaining, doesn't quite contribute to meaningful discourse and only fuels their disdain for us. But fear not. I've taken one for the team and sat through it all. Ready for a rundown? Here's your comprehensive summary of everything that went down at Davos this year. In Davos 2024, the world's elite and other self-proclaimed stakeholders convened in the typically tranquil Swiss town to chart the future, all while excluding us common folks during the World Economic Forum's WEF annual gathering, which has gained notoriety over the years. This time around, there was a noticeable difference. People were finally paying close attention to the powerful statements being made by these influential figures. Several clips from the conference have since gone viral, and for good reason. I already covered the basics, but it is time to dive deeper. In this episode, I'll provide you with a concise summary of some of the most crucial insights shared at this year's Davos conference, at least those that were deemed suitable for public consumption. As is customary at Davos gatherings, the event kicked off with opening remarks from Borger Brenda, president of the World Economic Forum, and Klaus Schwab, the WEF's founder and executive chairman. Klaus created the World Economic Forum to bring together influential stakeholders to shape the world's future, a vision he openly discussed in an interview. Borger began by noting that over 3,000 participants attended this year's Davos conference, matching last year's numbers. He pointed out the event's occurrence amidst a complicated geopolitical situation, emphasizing the necessity of worldwide collaboration to tackle global issues. After a series of expected cliches, Borger stepped aside for Klaus. Klaus declared that the WEF's goal is to catalyze global change, admitting such change will disrupt the lives of ordinary people. It's worth noting, these programs weren't subject to public vote. Klaus highlighted that the risks of these initiatives are primarily borne by individuals and nations. Klaus made it clear that the individual and national interests are clashing with the WEF's programs. He stated that the WEF's responsibility is to progress the world, but by we, he doesn't include the general public. He's referring to the WEF stakeholders. Klaus highlighted that this year's Davos theme was about regaining trust, specifically the public's trust in institutions under the WEF's influence. It's evident that since the 2020 pandemic, trust in these institutions has plummeted worldwide. This raises the question, how does the WEF intend to restore this trust? Klaus's solution involves trusteeship, which translates to prioritizing the collective good over individual interests and ambitions, typically aligning with the WEF's agenda. Klaus then generously thanked the Swiss Army and police for keeping the unruly commoners away from the elite gathering in Davos before welcoming Swiss President Viola Amherd to the stage. She mainly rambled about the United Nations, UN, insisting on not just beefing the dystopia up, but also remodeling it. If you've read my articles over the past two years about who's really pulling the world's strings, you'd realize it covered the basics. Interestingly, the WEF and the UN are buddies, working together to hit their Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs, in every country by 2030. That's why that year keeps popping up everywhere. Viola then declared that fake news is public enemy number one for the WEF, and digitizing everything is the key to regaining trust. Why? Because then the WEF can keep a tight leash on information flow. 
Surprisingly, she admitted that not everyone is a WEF cheerleader, and her reasoning? Plain old populism. It couldn't possibly be because the Davos elite are busy crafting global policies that sideline the average Joe. No way, it's just populism. She demanded that corporations put an end to it. Furthermore, she was adamant that the WEF isn't just a puppet to these trends. Instead, they need to be halted, and that's the mission for everyone at the WEF. In other words, they need to regain control of the narrative before more people catch on to the true nature of their agenda. Davos was overflowing with speeches and panel discussions. Way too many to cover here. But I've sifted through what I consider the key ones, many of which flew under the radar. In a particularly noteworthy press conference, Kathy Lee, head of the WEF's Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, dropped a bombshell. The WEF is developing an AI to implement and enforce the UN's SDGs. The panel shared their plans to leverage this AI in crisis management. By the way, these SDGs involve stuff like digital IDs, smart cities, and central bank digital currencies, all of which are dystopian concepts I've dissected in previous articles. Adding to the intrigue, one panelist asserted that AI usage should be exclusive, accessible only to a select few, and solely for what the WEF deems the greater good. Remember, this is the same WEF that once predicted will own nothing and be happy by 2030. That's their idea of greater good. Also slipping under the radar was Borger's announcement that the WEF aims to transform global trade. The specifics of what this means were left vague, and of course there was no shortage of chatter about AI and supply chains. Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, the head of the World Trade Organization, WTO, dropped a significant hint that the WTO is undergoing reforms. This mirrors the WEF's drive to reshape the UN, as mentioned by the Swiss president. The exact nature of these reforms remains shrouded in mystery. However, an intriguing announcement is expected at an event in Abu Dhabi later in February. So stay alert for updates. Shifting focus to the topic of dystopian technologies. If you've read my work on the financial systems central banks are crafting, you're aware they're keen on tokenizing assets on centralized blockchains. This might be how they envision a future where you own nothing and are still happy. But let's not get lost in speculation. There was a WEF panel on tokenization featuring notable figures from the crypto world. Importantly, the tokenization the crypto sector advocates for is decentralized, in stark contrast to the centralized model promoted by the WEF. However, a word of caution. Most players in the crypto sphere are subtly pushing systems that are equally dystopian. Take, for instance, Circle, the issuer of USDC. It's intriguing that Circle's CEO, Jeremy Allaire, openly challenged the principle of same risk, same regulation, which is pivotal in crypto regulation and aligns with the WEF's approach. This echoes a theme we've touched on previously the undercurrents of discord among major financial powers. From my vantage point, this tension may explain the seemingly erratic regulatory actions of bodies like the SEC. There's an apparent tug of war for influence between groups linked to major banks and those connected to asset managers. This friction might also be present within the WEF, a hypothesis supported by additional circumstantial evidence we'll delve into later. But let's pivot to a major highlight of this year's Davos conference, the plethora of viral content it generated. 
Most of these clips featured key figures, unsurprisingly, since the WEF predominantly showcases its main stage events on YouTube. Among these, the most attention-grabbing were from Javier Millet, Argentina's newly elected libertarian president. His political philosophy advocates for reduced government economic intervention and even proposes shuttering Argentina's central bank. However, watching his speech in its entirety reveals some peculiarities. For one, Klaus introduced Javier with notable enthusiasm. Following the speech, mainstream media coverage suggested that the WEF elite actually appreciated Javier's address. This reaction raises questions. Was his speech not taken seriously, or is there more to it than initially meets the eye? It is so obviously a psyop. It is not even funny anymore how people I considered smart cheer for this guy. But since I don't believe in populating the internet with my personal opinions, many of them are very controversial. I will leave it to you to interpret Javier's speech. His message was suspiciously potent. He cautioned against the West's shift from individual freedom to collective socialism. Javier detailed how capitalism has dramatically reduced global poverty since the 1800s and provocatively questioned the voluntary nature of tax payments. He also touched on some sensitive social topics, which we'll skip over here. Towards the end of his speech, Javier dissected how Western countries are subtly transitioning to socialism. He clarified that while government control over the economy isn't always overt, it often manifests through regulations and central banks, particularly in the manipulation of credit flow. This point hits closer to home than one might think. Consider the ESG investment strategy, rooted in the UN's SDGs. Recall discussions from Davos 2022 where megabanks and asset managers stated they would deny credit to non-ESG compliant businesses. This is a chilling development. Chinese Premier Li Keong's speech, which followed the opening remarks, received less attention. As China's second in command, Li focused on SDGs related to environment and energy. Notably, China's dominance in renewable energy supply chains, a topic often ignored at Davos and by mainstream media, underscores the complexity of these discussions. This isn't a conspiracy theory. It's a fact worth researching. Lee asserted confidently that China is a reliable partner, open for business, and is experiencing rapid growth without relying on economic stimulus. This last point is crucial as it highlights China's decision against economic stimulus in light of its slowing growth, a stance not favored by Wall Street. Following Lee's address, Klaus probed him with several questions, including some on AI. Lee's view that AI is somewhat overhyped starkly contrasts with the general consensus at the conference. However, both Lee and other attendees agreed on one thing, the need for AI regulation in the name of safety, a familiar refrain. Another less noticed event at Davos was the interview with Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State. As a key figure in U.S. geopolitics, Antony's most notable remark concerned the potential misuse of new technologies by adversarial states. His other comments mainly circled around issues in the Middle East and Eastern Europe with predictable focus areas. Antony also broached the subject of Taiwan and emphasized AI's potential to expedite the progress of the SDGs, which he conceded were behind schedule. He suggested that AI could address challenges from energy scarcity to environmental crises, advocating for NGO involvement in these efforts. Typical WEF rhetoric. The panel featured Kevin Roberts of the Heritage Foundation, who argued that the next Republican administration should entirely reject WEF policies to liberate citizens from their technocratic control. 
Kevin labeled China as the primary geopolitical threat, a topic curiously overlooked at Davos. Yet, China had a significant presence at this year's event, prompting a U.S. counter-response. EU President Ursula von der Leyen's speech at Davos also drew moderate attention. Her remarks could be seen as somewhat gaslighting, given her reference to the WEF's Global Risks Report that identified disinformation, misinformation, and polarization as prime threats. In this context, disinformation and misinformation often serve as euphemisms for narratives contrary to elite interests. Ursula emphasized the need for global cooperation to combat these risks, presenting the EU's Digital Services Act as a potential model. This act includes provisions that would enable the EU to manipulate social media algorithms during crises, effectively creating a network of ministries of truth across EU countries. Despite acknowledging Europe's energy struggles and the discontent among European businesses, Ursula pointed out a silver lining, reduced dependency on Russian energy. This assertion, however, is debatable. Reports suggest Europe continues to import significant amounts of Russian oil and gas indirectly through countries like India and China, often at inflated prices. The recent halt in U.S. exports of liquid natural gas, LNG, has caught some attention, not to mention the potential havoc the Middle East conflict could wreak on Europe's energy situation. Ursula, in her speech, vowed to continue the strategies Europe has employed since the pandemic. This, to me, translates to the EU doling out hefty funds to member states in exchange for adherence to its increasingly authoritarian mandates, echoing the tactics of a would-be IMF. Klaus, following Ursula's speech, posed a single question about the progress in de-risking as opposed to decoupling. Ursula's immediate pivot to discussing China indirectly admitted Europe's deep reliance on the country. This links to a somewhat ironic development. The EU's efforts to curb imports of inexpensive Chinese EVs despite its green ambitions. Logically, embracing these affordable EVs would align more with their green objectives, yet they choose to resist them. Turning to the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, his speech was markedly more composed than his previous outburst at last year's Davos over the geopolitical divide hindering the UN's SDGs. This time, he seemed to subtly reproach the U.S. for its continued production of dirty energy and urged a transition to cleaner sources, a sector dominated by China. Antonio's call for peace in the Middle East and Eastern Europe seems novel, yet it's primarily to expedite progress on the SDGs. Like the Swiss president, he too advocates for reforms in global governance. His exact words were, Rebuilding trust requires deep reforms to global governance. The Q&A with Borger further revealed Antonio's stances. He described the current global system, established post-World War II by the Global North, as outdated due to the rising Global South, hinting at the need for a new global framework. Interestingly, he seemed fine with a fragmented world, provided there's global governance. He also made a controversial remark potentially justifying Russia's actions in Ukraine, suggesting that while the drawing of borders may be flawed, they should be respected. Borger's nervous reaction to Antonio's comment about borders aligns with my that the U.S. and China are vying for influence over the U.N. I predict that the U.N.'s interests might increasingly align with the global south in the coming years. Looking back, it seems the shift in global governance dynamics might already be underway. As I've suggested earlier, this could have mixed implications. While it might sideline U.S.-led initiatives like the SDGs, a U.N. influenced more by China could introduce even more authoritarian measures. 
China's track record doesn't exactly inspire confidence in its commitment to freedom and autonomy. This context frames what I consider the three most pivotal discussions at this year's Davos conference, all centered around a key theme for the coming year, freedom of speech, or more accurately, its erosion, especially in light of upcoming major national elections. Governments worldwide have been increasingly cloaking their online censorship efforts under the guise of safety and protection of the vulnerable. A case in point was one of the WEF panels titled Protecting the Vulnerable Online. The discourse there was astonishingly extreme. The session opened with references to the WEF's Global Risk Report, where misinformation and disinformation topped the list of concerns. The panel suggested that AI would exacerbate these risks, proposing international regulations as the solution. However, this wasn't limited to safeguarding children online, as Maurice Levy, chairman of Publicist Group, expanded the definition of vulnerable to essentially include every internet user. Levy also lamented the constitutional hurdles in the U.S. that prevent the adoption of EU-style online regulations globally. Recall, these EU regulations would grant governments extensive control over online content in times of crisis, real or perceived. Levy's past discussions with G8 leaders revealed an interesting insight. Former German Chancellor Angela Merkel expressed apprehension about implementing such rules, fearing public backlash. Notably, she worried that even 5% of the population resisting could be problematic. This is significant, considering the theory that just 3.5% of a population actively opposing a regime can be enough to challenge a dictatorship. Merkel's concerns about a mere 5% opposition underscore the potential power of public dissent. This is a key point to remember. Imagine this. Julie Grant, who leads Australia's e-safety department, is currently orchestrating a global online safety regulators network. Its aim? To spread EU-style online censorship regulations worldwide. Meanwhile, Maurice was boasting about pressuring advertisers to withdraw funding from social media platforms that defy these censorship norms. Helena Laurent, another prominent figure focused on online safety in the UK, expressed disappointment that only 60% of countries have adopted such laws. As the discussion wound down, she dropped a startling revelation. The WF seems disinterested in addressing the over $1 trillion lost annually to online scams. Maurice added his own disturbing vision transforming every online user into a safe box. Noticeably absent in all this talk was any substantial discussion about genuinely protecting vulnerable people online. This leads to the second panel focused on censorship, aptly titled, Where is Freedom of Expression Going? The trajectory, unfortunately, doesn't look promising. The panelists appear to be deflecting blame onto the public, a classic gaslighting tactic. Tarana Hassan of Human Rights Watch opened with a nuanced take. While some content censorship is understandable, it risks sliding into outright suppression of free speech. She also criticized Salvadoran President Najib Bukele for his mass imprisonment policy, despite it reportedly achieving the country's lowest murder rate in 30 years, according to mainstream media. While Bukele may have his flaws, his success in reducing crime by incarcerating criminals stands out as a notable achievement. In a striking panel discussion, Belarusian politician Sviatlana Tsikhanouskaya highlighted the repressive reality in Belarus, where expressing genuine opinions can lead to government backlash. Interestingly, the WEF's video description labels Sviatlana as Belarus's president-elect, an intriguing designation considering Belarus's elections are scheduled for late February. 
This raises the question, does the WF possess insider knowledge about the election's outcome? Well, of course. A particularly revealing moment in the discussion was an audience query regarding Sri Lanka's online safety bill. Like many such legislations, its primary function seems to be the suppression of dissent. Tarana acknowledged this concerning trend, though she stopped short of admitting its global prevalence. For context, Sri Lanka's online safety bill was enacted shortly after this discussion. Notably, Sri Lanka previously boasted the highest ESG score, signifying its alignment with the SDGs, before its dramatic collapse. This segues into the third panel on free speech, titled Protecting Democracy Against Bots and Plots. While bots and nefarious schemes certainly threaten democracy, the panel highlighted a worrying trend, using these threats as pretexts for stifling legitimate criticism. The moderator reiterated the WEF's stance that misinformation and disinformation, likely to be magnified by AI, are principal dangers. Alexandra Givens of the Center for Democracy and Technology immediately advocated for the promotion of trusted information. She proposed an extraordinary measure, having U.S. politicians campaign websites hosted by the government. She also referenced the 2016 election as a learning curve for big tech in intervening against online misinformation and disinformation. At the panel, Czech Minister of Foreign Affairs John Lepovsky faced somewhat dismissive treatment, possibly because he revealed Russia's funding of radical left-wing groups in addition to the well-known right-wing ones. It's worth mentioning that Russia has also been reported to finance radical environmental groups, dovetailing neatly with China's dominance in renewable energy supply chains. This coincidence suggests a potential strategic collaboration between Russia and China aiming to make the U.S. and its allies dependent on them, a remarkable hypothesis. Matthew Prince, co-founder and CEO of Cloudflare, stirred controversy by asserting that government regulation of AI outputs is unfeasible. Jan Lepavsky strongly disagreed, advocating for government control, which sheds light on the situation in Czechia. In a surprising twist, Alexandra defended Matthew, arguing that granting such extensive power to the government could usher in a technological dystopia. This stance seemingly put her at odds with Shmriti Zubin Irani, an Indian foreign minister, who proudly discussed India's extensive digital surveillance and control systems, encompassing everything from voting to social media and soon... AI content. She claimed this was the epitome of democracy, raising questions about the adequacy of checks and balances in such a system. The real undercurrent of this year's Davos conference, however, seemed to focus on influencing the outcomes of global elections in 2024 to favor the WEF's and UN's SDGs. A palpable anxiety among attendees was the prospect of Donald Trump's potential return as U.S. president, fearing he would cut funding to the WEF, UN, and similar organizations. This concern was epitomized in the final panel on the global economic outlook, where Trump's potential presidency was a central topic. The consensus among panelists was that his election would inject considerable uncertainty into the markets due to its political and geopolitical ramifications. Clearly, his potential return to power is something they fervently hope to avoid. In a world increasingly dominated by shadowy elites and their organizations, the Davos Conference stands out as a prime example of the insidious influence exerted by the World Economic Forum and its allies. Yet amidst this convoluted web of power and control, a panel titled 4.2 Billion People at the Ballot Box cut through the noise, revealing a profound shift in the global power dynamic. Author Rachel Botsman's incisive comments captured the essence of this shift. Trust in centralized institutions has plummeted since the pandemic, she noted, but it hasn't vanished. 
Instead, it's being rechanneled into decentralized systems, with the burgeoning adoption of cryptocurrencies serving as a testament to this trend. Botsman's observation that this decentralization makes it increasingly difficult for governments to control information is a dramatic understatement. The more they attempt to grip the flow of information, the more they lose the people's trust, a concept seemingly alien to the elites. Contrastingly, Alexander Soros, chair of the Open Society Foundation and grandson of the controversial billionaire George Soros, offered little of substance in his remarks. His grandfather, however, remains a formidable force in global finance and politics, with recent investments in community groups aimed at swaying the upcoming 2024 U.S. election, a move that demands reflection. Mark Leonard, director of the European Council on Foreign Relations, encapsulated the prevailing sentiment at Davos. The 2024 U.S. election is pivotal, with populism, the voice of the people, challenging the technocratic imperative, the agenda of the WEF and its cohorts. This tension underscores a profound truth and offers a clear directive. The upcoming elections are a chance to oppose the WEF and its ilk, irrespective of political affiliations. This isn't about endorsing a specific candidate or party. It's about championing the very essence of freedom currently under siege by unelected, unaccountable entities like the WEF. The coming year presents an opportunity to break free from their clutches, a chance we must seize with both hands. It's a battle for the very soul of our societies, and the time to act is now, before it's irretrievably too late. Thanks for listening. See you next time.